to the Murder Library. I'm Megan. Oh, I'm Zach. I'm Enrique. Cheeky. And the cat. <laughs> and the cat. Um, first, before we get into it, I want to apologize for our absence. Um, one, we've had technical issues the past week. And then just, you know, life's been busy. So. Yeah, some events. Some if events. Yeah. Um, also, before we get into it, I want to put a little trigger warning at the start. This episode does contain the murder of children. So just, if you can't handle it, skip this episode, or I will put a trigger warning right before, uh, so you can skip anything if you need to. Um, that's all I have, if we want to get into our little immersive yeah. intro. Yeah, been waiting for this already. Yeah. <laughs> so if everybody could turn down any background noise, close your eyes, and just listen closely. I want you to imagine that you are a firefighter. You risk your life day in and day out by going into these burning buildings and rescuing anyone possibly stuck inside. Well, today, New Year's Day, you get a call for a house fire in a nice neighborhood in Richmond, Virginia. You and your crew race out to the scene and start battling this intense fire. Time passes and it seems to finally be under control. You're exhausted, but it's time to go see if there's anyone inside. There are neighbors saying that a family of four should still be home. So you and a couple of others from your crew enter, searching for hopefully any survivors. You don't find anyone as you go from room to room, and you're starting to hope that maybe they weren't even home. But there is one place left to look. The basement. You start to descend the stairs, but the smoke is thick and dark, and the heat is intense. You can't see a thing, so you're left to just feel around. You bump into something. Someone. It's a woman, possibly pass out from the smoke. You call out you found someone and grab her and race out of the home carefully. You place her onto the grass outside and are assessing the situation, getting ready to start resuscitation measures when another colleague brings out a little girl. As you remove your mask, you finally notice that something terrible has gone on here. Both the woman and the little girl are tied up, have tape over their mouths, and they look like they've been brutally attacked. This is no ordinary house fire. You can open your eyes. Fuck. So, that is... Some foul play. Some, some foul play to say the least. Um, before we go into that tale, we're gonna we're gonna rewind a bit, and we're gonna talk about some people. Um, there are quite a few people at play here, so I try to keep it as clear as possible. But I will bring up and like reintroduce if I need to throughout the way. So we're gonna meet one Ricky Gray, who was born on March 9th, nineteen seventy-seven. He did it. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) he was born in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, He does not have the best childhood to say the least. So Ricky struggled through school. He struggled to learn to read and he actually ended up getting labeled as a hyperactive, disruptive troublemaker by the school. Um, Is that even legal to put all those words into a giant professional statement? I mean, I mean, this was probably the 80s, so sure. Yeah. Why not? Anything goes. <laughs> yeah. As long as it's very descriptive, yeah, it doesn't yeah. have to make sense. Nope. Um, but when he was home, he would get kept in line by violence. And later on, he actually confided to his mother-in-law about how his father would use corporal punishment on him, a.k.a. he would beat the shit out of him. Yeah. So whenever the school would call home to tell him tell them about how Ricky had been disruptive in class, his father would spank him with a horse strap, which is one of those thick, heavy, leather straps. It's all about 
pretty no, much like, like heavy duty belt. Steroids, yeah. Like. Well, yeah, still <laughs> like four layers of bells. Um, so he didn't just use this horse strap. He also beat him with a belt that actually had Ricky's name engraved in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a PVC pipe, and then base. I mean, that's just like one way to personalize your own beating. Yeah. Yeah. Did he get it on Etsy? God, cheeky <laughs> shit. It was not. It was not a thing back then. Craigslist wasn't even to be thought. Are you? It was a garage sale. That's what it was. It was a garage sale. Someone from a garage was doing it for sure. God, and I thought I was horrible for You're silently. As bad as it is, when you said the she's PVC, about to be put on block. I don't know about you guys, but she's about to be put on block. <laughs> when you said the PVC pipe at first, like the only thing that I thought of was someone getting smacked with a wiffle ball bat, and you hear that, boom. Pretty much. As bad, like <laughs> it's a bad situation, but that's the, the first thing that popped into my head. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um. So besides those, and he would also just basically use anything that he could get his hands on whenever he would fly into those rages. So, on top of all of that, Ricky's siblings would also blame him for the things that happened in the house, so he would get beat for that as well. Uh, pretty much. Uh, because of all this trauma he gets put through as a child, he ends up wetting the bed pretty much up until he's 13 years old, which would cause him to get beatings. So, he would get beat, cause him to wet the bed, so he'd get beat again. It's a vicious cycle. Vicious, vicious cycle. So, I'm not sure how many siblings exactly there were, but the mother, Barbara Moten, would later say that there were instances of times when a friend of the father would sexually abuse two of the kids, but she said that Ricky was never one of the victims. Bullshit. Yeah, I'm not... (laughs) You don't know how many, but does it say there were both the genders? Yeah, there's both men and women. Okay. Well, boys and girls. Yeah, boys and girls back then. Um, So, his mother at some point ended up moving to, um, not moving, she ended up joining the army where she worked in Arlington, Virginia as a chaplain's assistant. She ended up getting a transfer all the way to Washington State just for a year though, so poor Ricky had to stay with his abusive stepfather in Maryland. It's funny how the church is always connected to assault. (laughs) Um, and he also had to stay with his stepbrother. So while Barbara was in Washington, his stepfather decided he needed a new hobby, so he got addicted to cocaine. Huh? That's an expensive hobby, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, some people, they have their things. It yeah. shouldn't be that way. No. <laughs> no. Um, slight trigger warning here. When Barbara returned, she learned the horrible truth about how Ricky's stepbrother had been sexually abusing him. Um, Ricky refused to talk about it, especially to her. His sister, Ava, even later talked about the sexual abuse that apparently went, that she went through too, from the same stepbrother. She even brought it out that he had been targeted by the stepbrother since he was only four years old. And the assaults and the beatings were just a regular thing for the next seven, seven years. Good God. Pretty rough start. Yeah. To say the least. Um, so he was not only getting sexually abused by his stepbrother starting at four, but when he's eight years old, he's staying at a brothel that his stepfather owned. The <laughs> <laughs> look on Chief's yeah. face. <laughs> um, he was getting assaulted and raped by the prostitutes there. So Ava also later said that by 13, Ricky here was using drugs and he was starting to drink alcohol. He was mostly on marijuana, cocaine, and PCP. I would have been okay if you just said 
alcohol than marijuana, but... No, he's 13. He should be doing that shit anyway. Look, look, yeah. all right, I'm going to put in today's standards. Yeah. A lot of people would be okay with that, but... Yeah. When we're talking about PCP now... Yeah. So he... <laughs> it was 9 when he started to drink. It was 11 when he was on PCP, and by 13, he was on everything. So he's oh. brain dead by he's 17. Is that Pretty much. <laughs> Just his brain. That's so tragic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He had no chance of proper development. Like Drew Barrymore? She oh, said yeah. And Amanda Bynes, too. Oh, Does anybody else get the phantom in their head at <laughs> random moments? <laughs> Please yes. tell me I'm not the only one that, no. like, will be in this... At work. I work at Petco. Just doing my shit with the animals. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> but you know how they're talking about making a, um, a Drake and Josh reboot with everybody in it? No. Yeah. Oh. oh. Yeah. And apparently, and I learned this recently. Spoiler Drake, alert, people. Yeah, no, 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 spoiler. So Drake Bell apparently has a really good career in Mexico, so he changed his name from Drake Bell to Drake Campana, which is Spanish for Bell. And I know most, he knows a lot of Spanish. Yes, yeah, most of his tweets are in Spanish. Like, yeah. Mexicans love him, apparently. Yeah. Oh. Like, I did not know this. I did not know Plus, he either. speaks a lot of Spanish, I think, on his TikTok. Or yeah. Yeah, yeah, TikTok copy that. <laughs> okay. Fun facts. Okay, all right. So, he's practically brain dead. Yes. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know P- what PCP is, it's also known as angel dust, but it's also basically just a dissociative hallucinogenic, so it will just fuck a person up. Um, so later in life, all of that abuse, anytime he would smell Vaseline, he would get physically sick because it would just bring up those traumatic memories of, you know, being sodomized. Um, and so as you can imagine, that abuse, physical, sexual, and mental, it all kind of shaped him into being the man he kind of later becomes. He doesn't excuse it, but at least, like, it shaped him. There's a reason behind it. Yeah, because... You're right, Cheeky. He's not the hero of her story. (laughs) (laughs) So when he was not at school causing trouble, being beat by his father or being raped, um, he could be found hanging out with his nephew. His nephew was born the exact same year that Ricky was. Um, Ray Dandridge was born January 24th, 1977. Um, Technically, his nephew is a few months older. Um, And they definitely... So like y'all too. Yeah. We don't kill people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can barely attract people on our own. <laughs> We're like two dead brain cells and a half over in this house. Yeah. <laughs> put, put our heads together and we make like a brain cell and a half. Yeah. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> so they definitely act more like brothers than uncle and nephew. Well, at least there's some silver lining to his little story or bio. Mm-hmm. Mm, no, no. <laughs> Uh, Sure, we'll go with that for now. So, Ray also struggled in school, and he would get diagnosed with learning difficulties. He would be described as low intelligence, socially inept, and a slow learner. As the two men get older, Ricky would lead Ray into trouble, specifically trouble with the law. Ray saw Ricky as being smarter, he was brainier, he was more intelligent, and he was able to put together their, like, criminal adventures that they would go on, you know, like robbing houses with guns. Um, Plus, Ricky gave him attention and approval, which was something that Ray craved. So, pretty much, he would comply with anything that Ricky said just so he could get that attention and praise. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be considered gaslighting? Mm. Somewhat. Kind of. Yeah. 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 
Um, so in either 1995 or 96, I heard, not heard, I read conflicting reports, but close enough. So when they're about 18, 19, the two guys are arrested for several armed robberies in Northern Virginia in the DC area. Ricky served three years, but would then be released, but quickly rearrested for drug charges and have to do five more years. So Ricky's criminal history is pretty much this. In 95 or 96, he got the conviction for robbery. In 2000, he was arrested for distribution of crack cocaine. And then in 2002, he was charged with possession of cocaine. So. He must be very easy to spot in a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, actually. I mean, he's I got he pretty. Kind he of. Like... He kind of looks a little greasy. But yeah. Um, I like Miley Cyrus. I just I, I assume that Miley Cyrus just always needs a shower because she looks so greasy all the time. Anyway. So while he was in prison, Ricky did end up getting his GED. He also took courses in sheet metal, electrical work, and even business. So it seemed like he kind of thrived off of that structured life in prison like some people do. They need that mm-hmm. that structure from... In other words, the only way they can focus out. is literally on the essentials. Yeah. yeah. So, work. so January 2005, about 10 years after that first robbery conviction, Ricky is released from prison. So he tracks down a girl that he had met a few years ago, um, and they, the two of them had been pen pals. So her name is Treva Terrell, T-R-E-V-A, Treva. She was born May 10th, 1970. She was raised in Canonsburg, Pennsylvania. She went to Cannon McMillan School. She would get the equivalent of a diploma, so basically probably a GED as well. She ended up getting a job through the Job Corps training program. Um, So Job Corps usually is for the at-risk youth, so even though not much is known about her past, we can pretty much assume that it was troubled. She- If it's in this section. Yeah, definitely. She actually ended up going with her mother, Marta Squires, to move to Alexandria, Virginia, where she worked for the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, which is where Ricky lived. So her mother described her as having moments of being a great mother because Trevor does have a few kids here or there. Um, I'm not sure how many, but... She's probably not sure how many either. She would be a great mom and a hard worker, but then she would have her down moments where she would meet, um, be met with uh, having these like depressive meltdowns. She would do drugs, date terrible men, and sometimes even end up in jail. Her mother said, quote, she would always land a good job and work her way up, but not for long with the depression. Then it was that bad lifestyle, end quote. So, so she was in a constant cycle of depression. Pretty much. She'd have her highs, but then have mostly lows. Um, In order for her to get a fresh start, her whole family moved back to Pennsylvania. Her parents bought a home on Duncan Avenue in Washington, Pennsylvania's Tylerdale neighborhood. They also bought a second home nearby, specifically for Treva, who was working in a factory as a temp and a telemarketer. So they literally bought a house for her to stay in just a few blocks from their own home. That doesn't scream, we know my crazy daughter's cuckoo, but, you know, we're going to isolate yeah. her anyways. Yeah. yeah. And they're at least trying to, like, help her out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, her mother thinks that she ended up meeting Ricky at a party or a club when she was in Virginia, but then he got arrested, so they kept correspondence and, like, wrote to each other. So, 
Ricky would send photos of himself to her. Great ones with the uh, prison barbed wire fencing in the background. Oh, sexy. How can, how can like, men in prison find women and I can't even get a text back? Oh. <laughs> just See, just do what I do. I'll text you that. Just send out a shit ton of them, and maybe one will pop up. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Speed swipe Tinder. So he would scribble on the Does back. Does not recommend. He would scribble on the back of these photos <laughs> things like "All yours," "Love you," or the real catch that would steal any deal. Don't I look crazy? The real catch, but he's behind steel bars. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the real caught? Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, so that don't I look crazy photo, uh, I actually saw it. It's him crouched in like a cement corner of a, like the yard. Um, and you definitely see the barbed wire fencing and he's got like his hands clasped and he's like, just like looking oh. off in the distance. <laughs> Is he crouched like half crab like core style? Up. Here, I will on. This will most likely be posted as a link of it, some sort. Just it will be so posted on the Instagram, definitely. Alright, yeah. cool. If you want to. Man, I fucking knew it. Yeah. As soon as you had said hand clasps, I was like, yup, that's it. And yeah. I fucking knew With it. With his like, elbows on his knees. That's going to be the, the cover for his big state. <laughs> So, I look crazy, don't I? <laughs> Jesus Christ. As I said, Ricky got released in January of 2005, and he looked her up, and he went to live with Treva. Treva's family didn't really like this, because um, he had that harsh record, and apparently he had creepy, long, manicured fingernails. So, But it was like one, at least the pinky nail was the coke nail, though, so that wasn't Probably. necessary. Probably. Didn't Ricky hit you to have the coke nail? Who? Ricky. Our Ricky. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, most of the Montanos already have a coke nail. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're all crazy. I can't say shit. <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact if we laugh at the Ricky name, we, we also have a brother named Ricky. Yeah, my, my <laughs> biological brother, his name is Ricardo. We just call him Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> we love you if you hear this, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so... Beside her family not liking him, Trevo kept insisting that Ricky was her soulmate and that they could not persuade her to turn Ricky down. He definitely played R&B when they were doing Sweet Love. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I see that. So their she romance was their romance was a bit of a whirlwind. The two end up married by April of that same year. So he got released in January and they're married by April. They even end up switching homes with Trava's parents so that Ricky and Trava could move into the roomier Duncan Avenue home with her kids and now Ricky as well. So they got married pretty quick. Are you sure he wasn't in the military? <laughs> Hard pass. Nope. <laughs> I have a better question. Where did the kids come from? She's had kids. Um, I'm not sure because there's not too much about her background. I'm not sure where they came from or how old they are. Okay. I just know that she has kids. <laughs> Okay. I was so, about to say, like, January, April. They're younger kids, though. Kids. Eh, mm-hmm. Some of them not, because he ends up doing weed with one of them, so. I, I mean, already knowing his background, let's be honest. True. It's probably not. True. Yeah, he's <laughs> probably not. Like, he's starting young. At least 10, maybe. So, at this point, Ricky is starting to enroll in electrician classes, and he ended even ended up moving his mother, Barbara, up to Pennsylvania. 
Um, but that was pretty short-lived because their marriage was not going to be a happy-go-lucky thing. What? Shocker. <laughs> Travis' family said that Ricky would scream at her kids, he was lazy, he wouldn't get a job, and he ended up, like, he would track Trava by calling her on the phone every few minutes, basically just stalking her. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, he was also having a hard time adjusting to life out of prison. For example, when the family would have parties or barbecues, Ricky would just walk around, he was guarded, and he kept looking over his shoulders. Um, paranoid. So, pretty paranoid. <laughs> I wonder how did the marriage, like, how did he, did he go to the courthouse or something, I'm assuming? I'm assuming they went to a courthouse. I don't see them having a big wedding. <laughs> Obviously not, Mr. Paranoia over there. Yeah. Um, Trevor began to suspect that Ricky was on drugs again, which she ended up confirming when she caught Ricky and her daughter smoking weed in their garage. Um, which, weed is not a big deal, but for Ricky, he definitely seemed like the kind of guy, if he was on one drug, he was bound to be on all the others. Yeah. Especially since he kind of started Yeah, he's got PCP. history of it, and if yeah. he's already started one... Yeah. He, he went into the deep end real young. Yeah. yeah. So, October of 2005... Ray Dandridge got released from prison, and he ended up coming up to Pennsylvania as well. Were they and prison buddies? I don't think they were in the same prison. Okay. Um, he said he wanted part of that good life that Ricky had. Uh, Travis' family said that Ray could stay for a few days because they do own the home, so they do have that kind of say, and they could set those kind of rules. Um, so they strictly said, like, just for a few days, then he's out. By Halloween, Travis' favorite holiday... Trava got her kids together, got them dressed up, and took them, some of the relatives, as well as some of the neighborhood children, and took them all trick-or-treating through the well, streets. That's nice. Yeah. Gather everybody up, have a nice day she's out. She's trying. Yeah, she was trying. But then the very next day, November 1st, 2005, uh, Trava left her home so that way she could try and contemplate what her life had become. She was getting more and more stressed out from having to argue with Ricky over and over, and then because of the drugs, the lack of a job, kind of an a-hole, um, she walked to her mother's house, which was just a few blocks away. Um, she told her mother that she was planning to end that short-lived six-month marriage. She told her mother, quote, he's not what I thought he was, end quote. Um, she also said that they didn't really have anything in common, and just she just wanted him gone. So pretty, pretty short-lived, not even a year yeah. <laughs> he was toxic from the start. We all knew oh, yeah. it. Yeah, very he was toxic, toxic since he was, age nine. No, I, <laughs> he was probably toxic from the womb. <laughs> <laughs> so sometime later, she leaves her mother's home and she began that walk home. And she had a plan. She was going to go home and tell Ricky she wanted a divorce. So a few days pass and it's the weekend. It's November 5th. Trevor and her kids are supposed to join her family to go visit some relatives in East, eastern Pennsylvania, but nobody's heard from her. She hasn't been picking up her phone, and when they arrive to her home, she's not there. She did. Shit. Ricky said he had no idea where she went, um, so her mother, Marta, just assumed that Trevor would probably just, she stormed off, um, trying to, like, drive from the point of wanting a divorce. Yeah. Maybe she was heated, just needed some time away. Off a bit. So she left. She packed up everybody, packed up the kids. She even took Ricky and Ray, Ray, Ricky and Ray with them to go see the relatives. Um, kind of weird, but also probably just wanting to get him out of the house so maybe Trayvon could come home um, and have some time to pack or whatever. 
So they get home that night, November 5th, and the Washington police called. They had some questions about Trava. But then shortly after that, the police actually rang their doorbell. Trava's body had been found earlier that afternoon. Um, pretty much instantly, Marna said that it had to be Ricky. As soon as you said the word body, I just thought body out of you. Someone's been on TikTok too much. Oh, but side note, if I ever get married, which the outlook is not good, um, <laughs> but if I ever get married and want to get a divorce, I'm going to tell like my spouse that I want a divorce via cake. I'm gonna send I'll make cake, that cake for you. Which is never great. I'm just going to have a cake made that says I want a divorce because I can't do that in person. <laughs> Set it on the counter, go away. <laughs> With the papers on top. No, the papers <laughs> are like printed in the frosting mm-hmm. on top. Sign, the Sign here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Swipe finger here. <laughs> so I called it. She did. Uh-huh. Um, she said that she thought it was Ricky because earlier that day they'd seen fresh scratches on Ricky's forearms. And when they asked him about it later, he just said that they were passion marks and not doing it right <laughs> not to quote on, passion marks they need that's to not on, my wording megan no. they need to be on your back not your forearms it's like when people say making love like oh, no. <laughs> okay. they were megan passion marks for making love <laughs> <laughs> he pled with them saying don't quote you don't think i do that mom end quote <clears throat> yes i do that's why i asked can't so, card. so Trava, she had been badly beaten with a pipe. She had been suffocated, and then her body was dumped on the side of the road in like a ditch area under some trees, and right down from a used car lot. Was it a PVC pipe? Um, it was actually. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's like, oh, I know the weight of this thing. Damn. <laughs> oh. You can find some pretty weird shit on Etsy, not gonna lie. Yeah. We'll get to that later. Yeah. Um, So, Trava's family were sure that Ricky and most likely Ray were involved. They were even scared that they might hurt them. So, they immediately kicked them out of their home and they were fearful that they would come for them. So, they would sleep with the lights on for weeks and they would even barricade the doors. Um, Around Thanksgiving, her family moved back into the Duncan home. With their grandchildren, so they moved back into the home that Trevor and Ricky had been living in. Um, when they did... So, wait, what did the cops do about this? I'll get to it in a second. Um, when they did, they said the home was an absolute mess. The washing machine was also jammed mid-cycle with a heavy comforter that was coiled up. So, on top of that, they said they ended up... This is so, like, I feel bad for these people because they don't want to think that something bad happened. They ended up cleaning blood and vomit from the master bedroom, thinking one of the kids had been sick. They also threw away bloody pillowcases and a plastic bag that looked as if it had been smeared with Vaseline. I don't understand how you can think that's not any type of foul play. Especially after your daughter was found dead. With with that much blood? Yeah. Like, to where it's like... It could not have been a little bit of blood. Yeah. Because I doubt these people were cleanly. Yeah. And they, they said that they just threw them away. Yeah, they just cleaned everything up and threw everything away. Yeah, no, if it was a little bit of blood, you would toss that in the wash. Like, that. that's willfully ignorant. Yeah. Um, so I heard, uh, 
and also read conflicting reports on if the police suspected Ricky and Ray or if they just questioned them and then didn't think much of them. Um, I did read one article where it was saying that they pretty much just chalked it all up to being a drug overdose, despite the fact she was badly fucking beaten and strangled. Yes, that. Cheeky's making a face that I pretty much made when I read it. (laughs) (laughs) If that article is true, it was basically just racial profiling because she was a black woman on welfare. They treated her case like it was nothing, um... And spoiler alert, I don't know why I had to struggle to say spoiler, Um, it won't be until her killers confess to killing her that they do any sort of a homicide investigation. They rule her death, yeah, they rule her death suspicious at the time, but that's it. They don't do anything until after the confession. But at that point, like, it's already solved, so good job. Not really. Um... So, Travis' family thought that Ricky and Ray together were a very dangerous mix. Because before Ray got there, Ricky was somewhat on track. He was kind of somewhat getting his life together. The whole school thing. Yeah. Um, He was still trash. Still trash, but it was at least a little bit better. He'll change. (laughs) Travis' stepfather even compared the two of them to two sticks rubbing together. You have both. You're going to get a fire. However, if you have just one, there's not going to be anything. No fire. But they're rubbing their stick together. Fine. Good job. Do you need to excuse yourself again? (laughs) (laughs) So after the men got booted from Travis' home, Ray moved in with his father in West Philadelphia. Born and raised. I thought the same. (laughs) (laughs) And on December 23rd, Ricky moved in with his maternal grandmother back in Arlington. A couple of guys. Couple of guys. Then Hope on. Yeah. <laughs> Started making trouble. Right? <laughs> <laughs> then on Christmas Day, Ray joined Ricky again in Arlington. So this next murder that I'm going to talk about, there's very little information on it. Um, back on December 18th, so shortly after Travis' murder, and then before Ricky and Ray are you reunited? Um, it's like a little side side quest thing going yeah, on. Yeah, kind of a little side quest. <laughs> um, all I found was basically this. In Culpeper, Virginia, which is about an hour and a half southwest from D.C., um, but still in the northern Virginia area, so also pretty close to uh, Arlington, Virginia, where Ricky is currently staying. Sherry Warner was a 37-year-old mother of three. She was found shot and hung by electrical cord in the basement of her home. Which was also on fire. Shit. Yeah. So. Here we are back at the beginning. <laughs> nope. This is a different home. Someone has an MO. <laughs> this is, uh, there is a couple, like, there's a little bit more to that, but that comes out in the confessionals that I will talk about later. So, we're going to talk about December 31st now. Ricky and Ray are reunited (laughs) a man named ryan carey who was 26 at the time just got home from work he was staying at his parents home in arlington and pretty much as soon as he got out of his car he was immediately attacked ryan was punched in the face uh he immediately gave them his wallet and his keys and told them quote whatever you guys need take what you need end quote and they did by stabbing him multiple times and severely beating him. When a couple of guys were up to no good. <laughs> <laughs> trouble in the neighborhood. Yeah, a lot um, of trouble. 
he ended up with stab wounds to his chest, neck, and arms. They only stopped stabbing him because they broke their knives into him. Like, they broke the handles off. I'm just going to go out of limb and go, I got in one little fight and my mom got scared. (laughs) (laughs) And she said... Here's the problem. And she said, What did this story go with? Because it's lining everything up scarily. Uh, well, they stopped stabbing him because they broke their knives into him. Uh, I already said that. You messed me up. Um, <laughs> Good job, Andrew, guys. He somehow managed to escape and rush into his home, completely covered in blood. His father called 911 and was taken to the hospital, where he was then stabilized. He spent the next two weeks in a coma and two whole months in the hospital. He was released, but completely lost the use of his right arm. Later in court, he would testify, quote, I could feel the knives going into the bottom of my mouth, the side of my face, then down around my neck. I noticed that I was having problems breathing, end quote. So he got pretty, pretty fucked up. Yeah, in yeah. lighter terms, yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, so this next one is going to be the roughest. It is the main focal point of this whole story. It's the biggest and worst case. Um, it's going to have the trigger warning later. Um, but we're going to start at their beginning because we have a lot of information on these people. In 1984, Catherine Grabinski was a senior at Cox High School in Virginia Beach. She was the senior class secretary in the homecoming queen, and on top of that, she was also voted most beautiful in the yearbook. Kathy had been raised in the King's Grant area of Virginia Beach. She also had an older sister as well as a half-brother. Her half-brother is Stephen Culp, who is an actor. He's been pretty much one episode of a bunch of shows like How to Get Away with Murder, Scream Queens, American Horror Story, 911, and Arrow. He was also a scutter in Captain America Winter Soldier, and he had a major role in Desperate Housewives. He's also in a few episodes of NCIS, too. Oh, and these are Grey's recent things. I mm-hmm. thought we were still in 85 here. No. No, yeah, he's no. been in a lot of recent stuff. Yeah. Um, Kathy, once, you, once you see his face, I'll show you his face later. Like, you'll, you'll be I'll able probably to see him as a yeah, cameo thing. Background character in a lot of stuff. Um, Kathy moved to Richmond after graduation. She became an art student at VCU. While she was there, she painted sets for community theater, she was a pastry chef, and lastly, she worked as a waitress. I feel like you got personally attacked just now. Personally attacked? Yes. Well, why? why? Pastry chef in Virginia Beach, in, in, oh. uh, in Richmond. No, like that's great. Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, she was a waitress working at the Border Cafe on Main Street. She ended up meeting one Brian Harvey. Brian came to the cafe pretty often, and usually with his friend Johnny Hot, Hot with two T's, H O T T. Because he's hot, hot. hot. <laughs> um, Johnny happened to also be Brian's bandmate. The two were in a two-man band called House of Freaks, which Rolling Stones later credited them with foreshadowing groups like the White Stripes and Black Keys. Um, okay. Yeah, so pretty, pretty good. So. Um, Brian, in the 80s, was in a power pop uh, group and called The Dads, which mostly played at colleges along the East Coast. He was also in another band called... Were they called, Dads? They were not. Brian oh. was... I don't know about the others, Phonies. but Brian was not. He was also in another band called Gutterball, but again, he was mostly known for House of Freaks. 
Brian played guitar while, and sang while Johnny was on drums. I really thought you were going to say drugs. <laughs> <laughs> they might have been. They he might have. Um, he was in a band in the 80s. Good chance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They played a combo of folk and rock. They moved to L.A. at one My point. My type of jam. They moved to L.A. at one point for the release of their first album. And it got actual considerable critical acclaim. But they didn't like L.A., so they moved back to the East Coast where they recorded a couple more albums but would fade from the spotlight. They ended up breaking up through, though, in um, 1995. Brian did put out an unreleased solo album in 97, though. Um, but back to Brian and Kathy. Brian's brother Mark later said, quote, Brian was a rock and roll guy who dated a lot of girls but was knocked out by Kathy. He knew this was the one to marry, end quote. In 1990, Brian and Kathy got married. Um, after they got married, House of Freaks came out with a song that Brian wrote called I Got Happy, which was pretty much just a love song for her. It's so sweet. <laughs> now you say nice stuff. <laughs> <laughs> On November 3rd, 1996, they ended up having a beautiful daughter named Stella. Um, through a fan-run website, Brian ended up saying, quote, I think I've come pretty close to knowing why I'm here on Earth since my daughter was born. I think you have to be helpful about life when you have a child. You owe it to them, end quote. Then on July 4th, 2001, five years later, they ended up having another daughter named Ruby. Around this point, Brian kept playing music, but now he got another job working on computers for the Henrico County School Systems, which is a smaller little suburb town outside of Richmond. Kathy ended up opening up a toy shop called World of Mirth on Cary Street, which is a super popular area full of super fun and unique shops and restaurants. I love Cary Street. It's a super fun place. Um, and it's definitely kind of like the hipster part of town. Her half-brother Stephen Culp later said in court about World of Mirth, quote, she wanted to create a space where parents could come with their kids and spend time. And kids could play with the toys. There's no guns or swords or anything like that there. It's a wonderful place. End quote. I'm guessing trains and stuff like that. Yeah, Locks. and it's got it's got like a lot of unique toys. Like, it's got your standard toys that you'll see, and even now they've got like adult games like Cards Against Humanity and stuff. Yeah, it's um, shifting with the wave. Yeah, but they've also got a lot of like really unique toys that you're not gonna find at like Walmart, uh, Target, or anything like that. So you'll find that. Well, that's pretty cool. Unique so this, stuff. this place is still open? Yeah, it's still open. Okay, there's your heads up, people. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's, it, I love going there every time I'm down there. Um, or over there. So it definitely seemed like they were doing pretty well for themselves. So well that they ended up moving to the south side of Richmond into a nice neighborhood. Um, they were a sociable couple. They ended up getting to know their neighbors really well. And had tons of backyard parties. And they would usually leave their front door wide open so that way friends can just walk on in. That's the white people do. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's a Carlos thing. <laughs> That's only with most of HM15. Yeah. And me. <laughs> I mean, you just, you'll show up through a window if it's open. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I helped put the second floor in on that house. <laughs> I've gone through doggy doors. <laughs> So, it is now New Year's Eve. Brian Harvey had a gig with his band, Energy Crisis. He didn't end up getting home until about 2 a.m. where he went right to bed because the Harveys, they hosted an annual New Year's Day party every year. So, while they were asleep, three criminals were on their way to Richmond. 
Those three are Ricky, Ray, and Ricky's girlfriend, Ashley Baskerville. They are heading to Richmond after that attack on Brian, and Ashley's parents lived in Richmond. Instead of going back to the house, they end up driving around looking for a house to rob, and this is now around 9 a.m. on New Year's Day, 2006. They Damn, early? Yeah, yeah early. They must be on, co- on coke. <laughs> <laughs> Tweakers, man. Uh, they're on something. So they spot a house with its front door wide open, and it's unfortunately the Harvey home. They had a storm door that was shut, but it wasn't locked. Um, it's a storm door for people who don't know, because it's definitely kind of more of an East Coast thing. It's basically just a screen door. Um, Ricky and Ray walked up to the house. Ashley stayed in the car to be kind of like their getaway driver. Ricky tried the screen door, and it was unlocked. So they entered the home, where they find Brian, Kathy, and Ruby. Stella was off at a slumber party that she had attended the night before. Ricky and Ray forced the family down into the basement where they tied Brian up with electrical cord. They told them to all cooperate and that no one would get hurt. Were there any weapons mentioned? Um, not yet. Around 10 a.m., Kristen Perkinson arrived at the Harvey home to drop off Stella. Oh, no. Kathy ended up convincing Ricky to let her go upstairs so that way she could get rid of Kirsten. So he did. He let her go, and I believe he followed up with a knife to her back um, to keep her from saying anything. So Kirsten later said that Kathy looked pale and stressed out and kind of ashy. Kathy opened the door. Stella ran right into the home and down to the basement because that was their kind of play area. Kirsten's daughter tried to do the same, but Kathy managed to shove her body in the way and block her from coming in. She told her that she wasn't feeling well and to come back later for the party. Kirsten left, and Kathy was then taken back downstairs. Ricky tied the rest of the family up. He put clear packing tape over their mouths, and Ray went upstairs to start robbing the home. Ray later said, quote, When we had the Harveys in their basement, Ricky acted very mad and was not making sense. His eyes were different and bloodshot, sticking out like owl eyes, end quote. It was because he was on PCP. Oh, same thing. He admits to being on PCP through pretty much all of this. So Stella and Ruby start to panic because, of course, they're two adorable little girls and they're scared. Kathy wanted to try and comfort them, so she kept telling Ricky, like, just take whatever you want. Take whatever you need. Like, just take it and go. So he did. He took a razor blade right out and cut Kathy's throat. This is going to get a little rough, so trigger warning here, crimes against children. Skip ahead if you need to. After cutting Cassie's throat, you then cut Stella's, and then Ruby's, and lastly, Brian's. Brian had to watch his wife and two small children get their throats cut. Fuck. And then his own. And then his own. But the cuts didn't kill them all. Nope, because they can't do anything right. (laughs) So Ricky then picked up a hammer... And hit them all over the head. Several times. Ricky later said, quote, They kept getting up and they were scaring me. I don't know who I hit first. All I know is nobody was moving when I left out there. What the fuck? I know. You don't get to say they're scaring you. Like, you're literally in their home robbing them. Yeah. Now killing them. You're, You're the scary one. Yeah. You're the monster. So Brian and Kathy ended up dying from blunt force trauma. Stella died from smoke inhalation and blunt force trauma to the head. 
and Ruby died from stab wounds to the back, one of which punctured her lungs. The men then tripped over an art easel in the basement, doused it with two bottles of wine, and then set it on fire. And then Johnny Hot came to the home around 1.45 p.m. for the party, but found smoke pouring out of the home. Yep, that's a, a party. Hot. <laughs> I'm sorry about that one. <laughs> he ran to a neighbor's house and had them call 911. Firefighters immediately got on the scene and entered the home. They said the house was completely filled with black smoke, and when they got to the basement, it had zero visibility and a lot of heat, which basically meant that they could tell that the fire started in the basement. Um, they were told that a family should be inside because, as I said, they were going to have a party, and so they went in to look. In the zero visibility basement, they just had to feel around to try and find anyone. One firefighter ended up finding the first body. He knelt down, came face to face with what he said was a female. He yelled out, got one, and took her outside. At this point, everyone is just thinking it was just some tragedy that everybody just got overcome by the smoke. They laid her down in the side yard and were about to begin resuscitation measures. He removed his helmet and his mask. But that's when he noticed that she had a sock stuffed into her mouth, and he thought maybe she was trying to cover her mouth from the smoke. I wonder if that will actually work. It'll I mean, it'll help a little bit, but not like, like not stuffing it in your mouth. Well, yeah, like, that's I was over. Just saying, like in general, like yeah, it would it would filter out a tiny bit, but yeah, yeah, it'll eventually get yeah. Um, but then they noticed that her hands and legs were bound, and there was darkening around her eyes. This is when they realized foul play was at hand, and this was not just an accident. But while he was doing this and assessing this, they found more bodies in the basement. One firefighter yelled out that he had a child as he brought her outside, too. Did they, does it say if they attempted any type of resuscitation? Or... They never even got the chance before they saw, like, at this point, there's literally nothing yeah. they could have done. I mean, at the, if I would have seen the, you know, the customs of throats, you already know yeah. from then and there. Because um, I'm sure with their masks and everything, it kind of hindered their vision a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but once they got outside and, like, they took it off and they got a good look, like, there was literally nothing they could have done. Gotcha. Um, so, they realized that this child, her hands and feet were bound with tape as well. And it was very clear that she had been assaulted. So, they realized now that this is a crime scene, so they halt everything and get investigators out there. A coroner arrives on scene where he finds the mother, Kathy, and little four-year-old Ruby laying in the grass dead. He then goes to the basement, which is still very dark because power had been cut to the home, so they could only work through flashlights and the flashes from cameras. Ashes were everywhere, soot was covering the walls. Apparently the basement was some sort of player for the girls with a bunch of toys. And there was a little puppet theater in one corner, which is where they found Brian. He had been bound and hogtied, um, tied up, which is where your wrists and ankles are bound together behind you. Um with orange electrical cord. He also had, quote, melted tape around his face and a large wound to his neck area, end quote. In another corner was a futon, and underneath that was nine-year-old Stella. She, too, had her hands bound behind her. Investigators found two hammers, two wine bottles, a knife handle, and a separate knife blade in the basement. They also ended up preserving the bindings and the gags from them. Um, they couldn't find any signs of struggle or even a break-in, but several items were missing, including jewelry that had been taken off the victim's dead bodies, specifically Brian's wedding band. 
They could probably see the like the skin. Yeah. Indented. Yeah. Yeah. Discoloration. The medical examiner ended up confirming the victims were 49-year-old Brian Harvey, his wife, 39-year-old Kathy, and their two daughters, 9-year-old Stella and 4-year-old Ruby. So, autopsies. This is rough. Skip ahead if you need to. That's your other trigger warning. Brian had been cut eight times in his neck and under his chin. The wounds were painful but not deadly. His mouth had been gagged and taped over. He had been hit six times in the side and back of his head with the hammer. He had severe third-degree burns, and his cause of death were the wounds to his skull. Kathy had been cut three times in her neck and chest, as well as once in her back. Those, again, painful and caused bleeding, but not deadly. She, too, had several uh, hits to her head with the hammer, the blows of which fractured the skull plate over her eyes, which caused internal bleeding oh. behind her eyes. Damn. Yeah. Um, she ended up... a hell of a headache. Yeah. <laughs> well, not for long. Um, <laughs> she ended up dying from blunt force trauma to the head as well. So now the kids. Again, skip if you need to. Ruby's throat had been cut through the trachea. It wasn't fatal, but it did obstruct her breathing. Her head had been fractured and cut, which had actually cu- um, caused some of her brain tissue to be exposed. She also had been stabbed in her back so hard that the knife passed through her ribs and into her lungs. She died from the head trauma and the stab wound to her lungs. Stella's neck had been cut six times. She also had stab wounds to the trachea and her esophagus. Her head was also smashed with the hammer, exposing brain tissue as well. She died from the smoke inhalation, carbon monoxide poisoning, and blunt force trauma to the head. So, it must have been a claw hammer or something. It was. Oh. It was a claw Fuck hammer. Who, who could fucking do that to kids? Drugs. Ricky. Don't do drugs, kids. Ricky. Don't do hard drugs, kids. <laughs> hard drugs. So, these attacks were brutal to say the least. The knife blade that had been taken from the home ended up having traces of DNA from all four victims. One hammer had Brian and Stella's DNA, while the other hammer had Kathy and Ruby's DNA. Want to know what was taken from the home to cause such brutality? Brian's wedding ring, a computer, a basket, and a plate of fucking cookies. A basket of what? A basket. Ricky just said they took a basket. (laughs) That's a nice basket. I I want that. (laughs) I need that basket to carry these plate of cookies. Yep. This computer. And this ring. So... The Harvey family funeral ended up having more than 1,400 people attend. Flowers and dolls were piled up in front of World of Mirth, and children placed candles on the curb in front of the Harvey home, which neighbors kept lit for weeks. That's quite the size of the funeral. Yeah, that's not a a small one at all. No. Well, they were very well-liked in their community. Like, their deaths hit hard for everybody. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure a lot of people even still to this day. Yeah. We'll get back to that after we finish. <laughs> so Stephen Culp said later, quote, It kills me to think about their last hours. We are all trying to get past this. You know, we owe it to them and to their spirit. End quote. Investigators were stumped. The family was a good family. They, had, they got along with pretty much everybody, and their daughters were sweet and adorable. Stella was popular in school and had a lot of friends, plus she was nine. Um, nothing seemed like it would lead a perpetrator into their home. 
So police question the one person that they can, their one suspect, the man who found the fire, Mr. Johnny Hot. They consider him because, as I said, there weren't any signs of forced entry and everybody was in the basement, meaning that they were cooperative. So they knew their, it seemed like they knew their intruder. Yeah. Um, detectives even looked into House of Freak music, specifically one song. I couldn't find the title of it, but it talked about a man sharpening his knife, flashes of pain, and a heartbroken woman in a basement. Investigators thought maybe Johnny got mad and then acted out the lyrics. But Johnny told them that it was actually Brian who wrote the lyrics because Brian wrote pretty much all of the band's music anyway. Yeah. Um, and He's if, not helping his own cause. I mean, Brian's dead. I get that, but I'm talking about, like, we're going to go in the, you know, the guy's shoes right now. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, I wrote all of that. Really? No, he was saying no, the dude. Oh, Brian no, wrote the all of it, not oh, Johnny. Okay, okay. Johnny was saying that Brian wrote everything. So an FBI profiler that got involved in the case ended up saying that a person who could kill small children in the type is the type of person who has zero concern for humanity, they have a lack of empathy for people around them, and that usually when small children are killed, it's an impulsive crime, which is, this was an impulsive crime. Um, Ricky pretty much has a lack of empathy for people, and he has no concern for humanity, so pretty much dead on. They questioned Johnny for a week before they came out and said that Johnny was no longer a person of interest and that he was cleared. So two days later, on the 3rd of January, the the three criminals are off in the streets looking for another house to rob. This time, they find a home in Chesterfield, Virginia, which is about 25 minutes south of Richmond. They went inside the home of Rory Mason and his sick wife. They end up getting inside because they were asking for directions, and then they just forced their way in. They ended up taking a computer, a TV, and $800 cash. Roy ended up convincing them from tying them up by saying that his wife was disabled and that she needed his assistance, like she would need him if something happened. They didn't steal any food this time? No food food this time. Donuts, nothing? Not this time. I bet you a can of ravioli. (laughs) And apparently they were super polite to Roy, saying things like, yes, sir, and no, sir. Um, Y'all weird. Very weird. Um, maybe he wasn't on PCP this time. So after this, the trio from hell went to Ashley's friend's apartment, LaToya. LaToya lived with her mother, Lily and Polly. They hung out there for a few days before LaToya started to realize that the three idiots were responsible for the Harvey murder. Um, they left the house on, I believe, January 6th with a new plan. The plan was to rob Ashley's parents. The plan was to go to Ashley's parents' house tie up the parents and Ashley to make it look like she was a victim too. So Mary Baskerville Tucker, 47, she was religious, highly missed church, she worked at a laundromat, and she was funny, loved to joke, and tease. Percy L. Tucker, 55, was a forklift driver who loved to bake pies, play guitar, and was a quiet man. Mary, Mary and Percy L. met when Ashley was one or two when they married. Um, so January 6th, Later in the day, a 911 call was placed. A woman was concerned about her friend, 21-year-old Ashley Baskerville, and this is LaToya calling. She was trying to reach her all day and was worried because she had been hanging out with two guys that she did not trust. So officers go to the home to do a wellness check where they find three bodies inside the home. Dang. That's a wellness check. Huh? They killed Ashley too? They killed Ashley, too. So seeing this, they now fear that the Harvey killers have struck again. 
All three, Mary, Percy L., and Ashley, were bound. They were suffocated by having plastic bags or plastic wrap around their heads. Percy L.'s body was found on the living room floor. Mary was in a nearby bedroom, and Ashley was in her bedroom on the floor. The autopsies later showed that they all suffered from slow and very cruel deaths. A medical examiner later, te later testified that Percy L.'s head was covered with plastic wrap. He had a sock in his mouth, and it was taped shut. He said that he most likely struggled for several minutes before suffocating to death. Percy L. was also stabbed five times in the neck. Mary's neck and chest were cut four times. Um, Percy L. had duct tape from his bottom lip all the way up over his nose. Then the plastic wrap wrapped around his head after that. Uh, Mary also struggled for several minutes before she suffocated to death. She had duct tape covering from her chin all the way up to one of her eyes. Ashley had duct tape from her chin up to her nose, and then that was covered with a plastic bag that had been duct taped to her neck. Ashley, too, struggled for several minutes before suffocating. Ashley did not have a chance. No. Not zero no. point zero zero. Wait until you find out why he killed her. It's great. Didn't have cookies. <laughs> so whoever attacked them cut their throats and then suffocated them. And it was very slow and agonizing death because, of, remember, they can't fucking properly cut throats. They can't do shit right. So they said that it was pretty, like, it was a very personal attack. They had a lack of concern for the terror or discomfort and death of these people. Detectives said that this scene was kind of scary by how clean it was and how they bound the victims. The two scenes were similar by the fact, like, the two scenes, this one and the Harvey home, were similar by the fact that the victims were bound. And in each case, they took steps to make sure that the victims definitely died. Like, one method didn't work, so they moved on to another. Plus, the Harvey home was just one mile away from the Tucker basketball home. Um, so, Ashley's friend who reported, so LaToya, was convinced she knew who killed her and her parents. She tells the police it's Ricky and Ray. She also says she thinks they killed the Harvey family. Plus, apparently, Ricky and Ray called her, like, that's, like after he killed her and said, quote, Ashley has gone bye-bye, end quote, which then prompted her to call 911. Ashley has gone bye-bye. Um, the two men had a history. They had committed crimes as, a teen, as teens, and they went to prison early, so now the police are looking into any possible connection between the men and both murders. They don't really have any evidence, especially connecting the crimes, until they literally strike gold. They found a gold wedding band hanging around Ashley's neck. Nope, quite literally. Was it quite, Brian's? It was Brian's wedding band, who had been killed six days prior. So on top of all of this, Ashley's parents' car was missing, which was a, glee, a, glee, a green blazer. And Ricky's car was found three blocks away from the Tucker home. So they find his car, and the car's missing. Pretty easy to put it together. Police sent pictures of the car as well as photos of Ricky and Ray to the media, hoping someone would spot them. The manhunt now began. It spanned up and down the East Coast. They looked pretty much everywhere from Virginia to New York. These news reports actually convinced Roy Mason to come forward because he hadn't come forward yet. And he told the police about how Ashley was the third robber because at this point they think she's just a victim. Yeah. But now they hear the story from Roy who is telling them she was in on it and actually was in the house stealing. So now police don't really think that she's a victim. She is an accomplice. Was. Was. <laughs> Ashley met the two men through LaToya, I believe, and police actually convinced her to call Ray to try and trace the call to get 
him to possibly even confess because now she was dating Ray. Ashley was dating Ray at this point. <laughs> Not this way, sorry. Um, he didn't outright say anything, but he does say things like it got bad or, quote, I don't really want to talk about it, end quote. So he's being evasive, but it pretty much confirmed the police's suspicions. They did trace the call, though, all the way to Philadelphia. Just one day after the, Tusker, uh, the Tucker Baskerville murders, they found the stolen blazer parked outside the home of Ray's father. So they did not hide their tracks very well. So SWAT moved in. Ray was caught trying to flee out of the back door. Officers searched the home for Ricky, who was found in the basement. He was hiding behind a furnace with a power drill, and he had a crazy look on his face. His eyes were wide. The theory was he was not going to get arrested again. So he had the drill to make it think, make them think that he had a gun and he was going to go down swinging and hopefully be killed in the act. Yeah. He did resist arrest, but he ended up getting like beat up and like he had bruises on his face and his mug shots and everything, but he got subdued and arrested. So pretty much as soon as they were in custody, they began to talk. It was one after our, after he um, got arrested that Ray began to confess and 12 hours after that Ricky did. Ray instantly painted Ricky as the leader and tells them how their story actually started two months earlier in Pennsylvania with the murder of Trayva Gray. So nobody thought they had done it at this point, but now he's singing like... Confessing to all of it. Yeah. It was said that their confessions were written out in a very matter-of-fact way, and pretty much as soon as Ricky heard Ray was talking, he wanted to get his side of the story out. Ricky admitted to killing Trevo with a lead pipe while Ray held her down. He said he killed her because he got tired of her. So leave. She wanted a divorce. He got tired of her. So leave. Yeah, you don't you don't take him out. Instead, Ray held her down while Ricky beat her and choked her to death. And then they just disposed of her body on the side of the road. That's what I'm doing to be a cake. <laughs> In regards to the Tucker Baskerville murders, Ricky and Ray said that Ashley handed over her keys um, so that way she pretended to be shocked and like be a victim. She didn't think anyone would die. This was supposed to just be a robbery. Ricky said, quote, things just went wrong, got tired of the girl, so I decided to kill her and take her parents' car, end quote. Does he not believe in like breaking up with people? Nope. <laughs> I mean, what His... about what breaking about... something? Huh? Is there drugs still involved there? I mean, he's pretty much on PCP the entire time. Oh, really good at breaking So. <laughs> um, they also confessed to the attack on Ryan Carey. Um, and then January 8th, police firmly identified Ashley being a participant in the Harvey murders, the robbery of Roy, as well as the robbery of her own home. Brian and Stella Harvey's blood were found on Ricky's shoes when they caught him. Um, so... Want to know? He was same shoes. Same bro. shoes. He probably only had one pair. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. Um. So something that came out during the trials, Ashley was there for the Culpepper murder of Sherry. She told a friend about it, saying details that had never been released. Um. She said that she heard a scream from the basement, and then Ricky came and took her down to show her the dead body. Quote. Um, Baskerville also indicated to Thomas, who was the friend that she confided in, her fear of Gray and that he stated to her on several occasions that he would kill her if she ever left him, end quote. So he definitely did not like women leaving him. 
January 20th is when the coroner office in Washington County finally released the official death on Treva. Um, but, you know, they were already, her attackers were already arrested and in jail. But, mm-hmm. you know, good on you. They finally released that she died from asphyxiation and her death was finally ruled a homicide. January 8th, back when there were a bunch of news reports being released on Ricky and Ray, Treva's mother saw them and screamed. She ended up meeting with investigators from Richmond and Culpeper where they learned that Ricky confessed to beating his wife, her daughter, and then suffocating her with a bag. He told police, quote, I'm sorry and I miss her and wish we could trade places, end quote. Her family had been holding vigils for comfort at the memorial that was where her body had been found. They also traveled to Alexandria, where an organization that combats domestic violence put up a plaque in her honor um, for her work with women that she did. She ended up crying when a Richmond detective called her later after Ricky had been convicted and told her, quote, Marna, we got him, end quote. Washington County doesn't want to prosecute these two men because, spoiler, Ricky does end up getting the fucking death penalty, so they, like, don't see the point in doing it, but... Yeah. Marna said, quote, why is, why is my daughter different? My daughter was black and poor and on welfare. It was black on black crime and they don't care. But I think it's necessary for my grandchildren to see them tried for her death. It's the right thing to do, end quote. Which I agree, they should have tried him. Yeah. So February 9th, Ricky was charged with five counts of capital murder in the Harvey killings. One charge for killing more than once in a three-year period. One charge for committing more than one killing in a single act. One charge for killing and commission of a robbery and two charges for killing a child under 14 years of age. That same day, Ray was charged with three counts of capital murder for the Tucker-Baskerville killings. The third count was later added to include his role in the Harvey killings. Bloth, Bloth, both pled not guilty, like idiots. So Ricky's trial began in 2006. He came across as this cold-blooded killer. He didn't seem to care, nothing would face him while he was in the courtroom. He had absolutely no concern for humanity, no empathy, no feelings. He came off as like a straight cold-blooded murderer. His defense did try to use the fact that he was abused as a child and had been on PCP to try and get some sort of a leniency. Been on or lived on? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Um, August 2006, jury deliberated for 13 hours before they came back with the guilty verdict for the murders of Brian and Catherine. They recommended he ended up getting, which he ended up getting on October 23rd, the death penalty for the death of Stella and Ruby. A month later in September, Ray was facing his time in court. He did have cognitive difficulties, but he was aware of what he was doing, of the extent of the violence, and he did have a criminal background, one of which was robbery using a firearm, which showed that he was willing to use violence. So just before the closing arguments, he was scared that he too would receive the death penalty, so he pled guilty and got life in jail without the possibility of parole. Um, so December 2006, Culpeper County indi- um, indicted Ricky for the murder of Cheryl Warner. Ricky pled not guilty, and on June 4, 2008, the charges were suspended due to some contradictory evidence. I couldn't find much on it. Like There was not much on this case at all. So May 2011... Through November 2015, Ricky's execution was set but stayed due to appeals. Then on January 19th, 2016, Ricky's execution was set for March 16th, 2016, but was yet again stayed so he could appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, who basically said, fuck off. Um, 
Good. Yeah. Yeah. November 2016, he was scheduled to be executed on January 18th, 2017. His clemency plea was denied, and lawyers fired an emergency appeal that was also denied. I was about to say, aren't you out of appeals now? Now he is. Um, they have so many appeals when it comes to death penalty. It's so many, it's ridiculous. Um, but everything got denied, so... So January 18th, 2017, Ricky is set to die. He was asked if he had any last words. He said, nope. And at 9.42 p.m., he was pronounced dead. A half dozen members of Virginia's for Alternatives alternatives to the death penalty gathered with about 20 of Ricky's family members to hold a vigil. Some said that, yes, there was no doubt that he did it, but no one else should have to die. Also outside was someone who knew the Harveys holding a sign that said, peace be with you. Um, also outside was a seven-year-old girl with a sign, I think girl, um, with a sign that said, quote, remember the victims, all of them, Stella and Ruby, Ricky Gray can rot, end quote. Her mother, who lived in Richmond and frequently shopped at World of Mirth, said that, um, bringing her kids, quote, this is a civics lesson. I want to protect my kids, of course, but I think they need to know what happened and not everyone is a good person, end quote. Maybe not bring them there. Yeah, it's like, a little, it's a little much. Show them you on can TV. Explain it from a distance. Take a photo. Yeah. Google it. Something. And maybe not hand your seven-year-old a sign that says "Ricky Gray can rot." Yeah. <laughs> that just seems a little much. A little, a little too involved. Tenny. What for do a I kid. do? Why does it say "Shh"? Don't repeat it. Just, just wave it. it. Yeah. So Ricky's death was not a smooth death in the least. Um, Dr. Mark Edgar, who is an associate director of bone and soft tissue pathology at the Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta, he said that something appeared to have gone wrong under the three-drug method. He said that a frothy liquid was found in Ricky's upper airway, which showed that he suffered from an acute pulmonary edema. He also had blood on his lips, which showed that blood had entered his lungs while he was still breathing. He couldn't be certain about the edema, but he said that would be similar to drowning, so basically drowning on your own blood. Honestly, he kind of deserved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he went on to say, quote, I cannot know how the executioners intended or expected the drugs to work. If they expected them to cause rapid and uncomplicated death without the possibility of a lingering sense of panic and terror, they did not get what they were expected, end quote. Um, he also went on to describe that the lungs were something similar to the aftermath of a sarian gas attack and then a routine hospital autopsy. Quote, this way of dying is intolerable. You can't control your breathing. It is terrible. When it is this severe, you can experience panic and terror. And if the individual was in any way aware of what was happening to them, it would be unbearable. End quote. So this three-drug method is supposed to work like this. The first drug is intended to render the inmate unconscious. Mm -hmm. The second is to stop the breathing. And the third is to stop the heart. However... The Department of Corrections, as well as the other state officials, come out to say that they are confident in the purity and efficiency of the periodically tested chemicals that were used in the executions. Not tested. Pretty much. So, I... They tested them on him. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> they out of date test chemicals is what I'm thinking. periodically tested when they have to execute someone. Yeah. Um, I think they definitely need to, like, reevaluate the whole situation. Like, I'm kind of glad that it kind of fucked Ricky up, because fuck Ricky... Um, but you know, not, not everybody deserves to have that like rough of a way out. Yeah. Um, so Ray is currently at Sussex 2 State Prison. 
So I want to end the episode with some stuff about the Harvey family. Um, their gravestone is seriously beautiful. I'm going to post a picture of it. It's huge. It has a tree carved into the stone and then four birds flying away on it. Two of them are slightly smaller to symbolize the girls. Mm-hmm. There's also a huge rose bush that has grown in front of the gravestone. And it's pretty much taller than the tombstone at this point, And it kind of hides it from the street. Um, but there's plenty of room for people to leave flowers or little trinkets. Plus, there's little shelves on the tombstone for them to leave stuff. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it's a really beautiful tombstone. The Brian and Kathy Harvey Family Memorial Endowment was created, quote, to provide music, visual art, and performing arts enrichment in the Richmond area, which may include but is not limited to educational scholarships, end quote. There was also an annual run called Ruby's Run that was organized to raise money in Ruby's name for a scholarship fund for the preschool that she had been attending. Um, June 2006, the William Fox Elementary School in Richmond, the school that Stella attended, dedicated the new children's garden in her memory. Um, January 2007, the Richmond newspaper named the Harvey Family Richmonders of the Year. And an American alternative country group called Drive-By Truckers uh, Mm -hmm. dedicated a song called Two Daughters and a Beautiful Wife to the Harvey Family. Richmond also dedicated a footbridge in Forest Hill Park in memory of the Harvey Family on September 19th, 2010. They named it the Harvey Family Memorial Bridge. Um, so that is the crazy and brutal tale of Ricky Gray and well, Ray Dandridge. <laughs> you can find all those pictures on our Instagram at Murder Library Podcast and on Facebook at True Crime Library. Bloopers? So, <laughs> what? Bloopers. No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. We'll see what I keep. Um, I'm not going to promise when the next episode will be, but it's going to definitely be a little bit more of a regular size one, um, and it's not going to be this intense. It will not have children in it. Um, Please. <laughs> <laughs> so that is it, and we will see you all next time. Bye. 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 Bye.